the ushers come forward and collect the morning's tithes and offerings. This past week at staff meeting, we talked about, well, what should we dress as? Should we dress as Canadians? Should we dress as our cultural heritage? And ultimately, we said, dress however you best see fit. And I was thinking, I wonder how many people would sit down during that, if you're a fourth generation or longer, and um, significantly less than half the congregation. And so I felt being a fourth generation Canadian, I'd wear flannel, because when I think Canadian, it's flannel. I probably think of a lumberjack, to be fair, and so I hope that, uh, that this represents my Canadian heritage well. Right after I graduated from college, uh, the Alberta Premier at the time said that he was going to give a significant sum of money to every Alberta citizen. I remember thinking to myself, there's no way this is true. He's not just going to hand over a $400 check to everybody in this province. It's not possible. And I thought, wait a second, there's probably a catch. Is there an election right around the corner? Does he need people to buy into something? Is he just trying to gain more votes? Whatever the case might be, a few months later, me and I'm sure many of you in this room received a $400 check. And I did exactly what the government wanted me to do with that money, and I put it right back into the economy. I was in my early 20s. I had just graduated college, and I thought, I need a video game system. And so the government shared their treasure with me. I shared my video games with my friends, and guys were over all hours of the night playing video games. Whether we're sharing our newest toys, whether we're opening up our homes, whether we're bringing meals to friends or giving in so many other ways, we have the opportunity to share this treasure. But during this missions month, we're going to be talking about a much greater treasure. We're going to have missionaries and mission organizations and stories even from within our own congregation about how God is working in our lives to share the treasure around Edmonton and around the nations. But today I'm not going to be talking so much about sharing the treasure as the beauty of the treasure. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have one on your uh, tablets or phone, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you this morning. You can take that home with you. Sometimes the Bible can be a bit of a confusing book. But in the opening couple of pages, you'll see the table of contents. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And we're in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. As you flip to that page or go go there on your phone, Matthew 13 is filled with parables. And outside of church circles, that's a word we just don't typically hear anymore. So here's a simple definition from Merriam-Webster. A parable is a usually short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. When Jesus is giving us a parable, he's using the story to encourage us to think and to reflect on the kingdom of God. And while some parables are really difficult to understand, some parables are a lot easier to understand. And thankfully, we're in one of the more easy-to-understand parables today. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. At first glance, these parables look identical, but while they're certainly similar, They are unique from one another, even if they express the same point. With the Bibles open in front of you still, take another look at verse 44 and you'll see what I mean. The kingdom of heaven is like a 
treasure hidden in a field. But when you go down to verse 45, Jesus starts off by saying the same thing. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like. But notice the difference. Jesus doesn't say pearl, but rather he says a merchant looking for fine pearls. The result is the same. Both people recognize the treasure is greater than the sacrifice. But there is a difference in how we get there. If you enjoy taking notes, the first part, which will be the shortest part, is the historical context. What's taking place for all those people who are listening to Jesus give this parable? The country that Jesus ministered in was Palestine, which we currently know as Israel. Not only was the land ravaged by war, much like it is today, but there were also raiding bandits. And money isn't easy to keep safe. Since there are no banks during this time, people would take the family treasure and they would bury it in the ground and not tell anyone where it is. Now, this is certainly a great way to keep a treasure safe, but if you happen to pass away unexpectedly, nobody knows where you left it. To this very day, treasure is being dug up all over Israel as archaeologists continue to dig and see what they can find and learn about the first century and earlier. For Jesus' disciples, this is a very plausible story. The man in the story might be a renter. He might be a hired worker. Who knows? All we know is that when he was working this field, he stumbled upon a treasure worth inestimable value. If he owns the land, any treasure found on it becomes his. But as a worker, he would receive a finder's fee and that money would ultimately go to the landowner. So suddenly, as a much greater interest in owning this land, he goes back home, he sells everything he has so that he can go and he buys this farmer's field and the treasure would be his. The merchant's story is a little bit different. He doesn't stumble onto a treasure of great wealth. He's actively looking for it. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we read of pearls being mentioned, but by the time we reach the New Testament, it's seen as a symbol of power and has grown in great demand. There are only three places that at that time were known to be found to be able to find pearls. The most inferior came from the Red Sea, which is in Egypt. Very nice pearls were found in the Persian Gulf, and the most difficult and beautiful to find were in India. Instantly, from the very moment he saw this exquisite pearl, like the man who stumbled onto the treasure, he sold everything he had to buy it. I find what Jesus does really interesting here. He's speaking to the rich and to the poor. He's speaking to those who are seeking and those who stumble on a good thing. I'm a lot like a man in the field. I grew up in a Christian home. I have Christian parents. I have Christian, um, Christian grandparents. And I just happened to stumble onto the kingdom of God. Church was placed right in front of me every single Sunday and for the vast majority of my life during some sort of midweek event as well. There was never a time in my life in which I didn't go to church. Some of you in this room are like that, but some of you are also like a wealthy merchant. You've gone from religion to religion, from worldview to worldview. Perhaps you've sought out other religious ideologies or Mormons or Islam or Hindu or as atheist a good way to live. Maybe you even tried to make it on your own for a while, acting as if there is no God and seeing where that would take you. And at some point in your life, you came to church. Maybe it was through Alpha, through a neighbor, through a family member. Maybe you were just driving by on Ellerslie Road and thought, I see this church so regularly, I'm going to step in and see what it's all about. And for most of you in this room this morning, you came to that realization of, oh my goodness, this Christian message 
is incredible. I want to learn more. But Jesus is saying more than just some people stumble onto the kingdom and some people search for it. He's, some, he's saying something that is absolutely preposterous. He is saying this treasure is worth so much that it's willing that it's worth selling everything for. And you've still gained. A treasure of such unfathomable value, there is no sacrifice that would be too much. This is what the parable is about. To summarize these three verses into one short sentence, it's a treasure greater than the sacrifice. It's easy to get immersed in the details, but let's take a step back and to see how beautiful and incredible this treasure is. The second part of our outline this morning, if you enjoy taking notes, it's unfathomable value. Both the merchant and the worker in the field thought this treasure so great, they sold everything they had to buy it. What would you give up? What would you give up to gain this treasure? When I think treasure, I think a pirate ship filled with gold. For those of you who have young children, perhaps they've stumbled onto Moana on Netflix. I know my four-year-old has, and he keeps watching it over and over again and loves the scene where the crab is on top of the gold. For myself and my generation, I think of treasure. I think of Scrooge McDuck and diving in and out of all of the money that he has saved up. But this treasure is greater than just money. Imagine for a moment a world with no death, no destruction, no decay. Imagine going on a walk and the grass is so lush that you don't have, um, that it's just beautiful to look at. That you don't have to swat away mosquitoes where everywhere you turn you see magnificent beauty. In the book of Romans, the author speaks about how all of creation is groaning for redemption. We read this in Romans chapter 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This isn't just an idea. In the New Testament, the prophet Isaiah, before Jesus came to earth, writes about it as well in chapter 51. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and look with compassion on all her ruins. Listen to these word pictures. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the sound of singing. What is it that you most enjoy in this world? Is it going on a fishing trip? Is it going on a hike? Sitting on a deck or patio with friends and family? Reading a great book? Getting immersed in a movie? Enjoying the relationships of a deep friendship. Whatever it is that you enjoy most in this world, the best parts of this world are a sneak peek into the next. Think about that for a moment. The best parts of this world, the best of what this earth has to offer, is but a sneak peek of the world to come. Anthony Hokima explains it well. In his redemptive activity, God does not destroy the work of his hands, but cleanses them from sin and perfects them so that they may finally reach the goal for which he created them. Applied to the problem at hand, this principle means that the new earth to which we look forward will not be totally different from the present one, 
what will be a renewal and glorification of the earth on which we now live. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beautiful treasure worth giving everything up for. What about politics? Even if the party that you voted for is currently in power, sometimes you probably think to yourself, what are they doing? Why are you putting such an emphasis on that when there's a need over here? Why would you implement that tax plan? What's the purpose of that social program? When are changes going to be made in health, in education, in infrastructure? Romans 20, uh, Revelation 22, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. A great king who says everyone has a home, and it's going to be beautiful. There will be zero unemployment. And all of us will have jobs to do that we love going to each and every day. There will be no war or even rumors of war for the nations will live in peace. We will continue to learn and grow in wisdom and knowledge, experience the greatness of God for all of eternity and sitting on the throne will be our rightful king, a political ruler who we bow down and worship. This is the kingdom of heaven that's worth the sacrifice. The world that we live in provides many pictures of relationship, both good and bad. In the last month alone, I've received a phone call from a grown man sobbing on the other line, saying, Dave, my marriage is falling apart. Please pray with me. I have no idea what to do. I visited my, month, my uncle in the ICU with tubes all over his body, not knowing when his day is going to be his last. A couple weeks ago, we held a funeral for a man in his 20s gone from this world way too soon. But I also had the pleasure of marrying a young man and a young woman who are deeply in love with one another. We had a church-wide prayer meeting in which dozens of people came together to pray for the ministries of this church and around the world. I had a couple of guys in my office just this past week who said, Dave, we want to see more men connected at Ellerslie. What can we do to make that happen? Imagine a world where there is no gossip no lying, no relational hurt or pain, but rather there's support, encouragement, laughter, joy, a place where every relationship is whole, is perfect, is complete. The last chapter of the scriptures, Revelation 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street on the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Two things happening here. Not only do we live in great relationship with one another, but our relationship with God is no longer veiled. We get to worship God face to face. We get to talk with him whenever we want to. No longer do our prayers sometimes feel like they hit the ceiling and bounce right back down on our head. No longer do we open the scriptures and go, I have no idea what that means or how to apply it to my life. 
but rather we worship in relationship with others and in relationship with God in a way that is perfect, whole, complete, and we see him face to face. Stephen Lawson writes, God's glory will fill and permeate the entire new heaven, not just one centralized place. Thus, wherever we go in heaven, we will be in the immediate presence of the full glory of God. Wherever we go, we will enjoy the complete manifestation of God's presence. Throughout all eternity, we will never be separated from direct, unhindered fellowship with God. Are you beginning to grasp how great this treasure is? How it's infinitely greater than any sacrifice we might give up? What about your body? I have the privilege of refing in one of the top over 35 um, soccer leagues in the city. In this past week, I was refing uh, a game in which the skill level was fantastic. And I was only feet away from the guy as he took a shot and he curled it around the keeper and right under the crossbar, tied the game up with about 10 minutes left. It was a beautiful goal. And at the time the ball was going in the net, he screamed out in pain. And I turned around thinking, is there a foul that I missed? He had pulled his hamstring. And he looked at me and he says, ref, getting old sucks. Getting old really sucks. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Is there wealth in the treasure in the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely. More than we can possibly imagine. And I don't even think we're going to care. Because the rest of the treasure is so great. Perfect relationships. Unhindered by sin. Seeing God face to face. All in a new world. In which we can enjoy the presence and power of God. Without any death or decay. Whether you're here this morning checking faith out or you've been following Jesus longer than I've been alive, the question now comes up, is this unfathomable treasure worth an incredible sacrifice? A few years ago, I was hanging out with one of my closest friends who still hasn't decided if he wants to follow Jesus. And after we talked about sports and talked about entertainment for a little bit, we got into matters of faith and he looked at me and he said Dave one of the things I appreciate about your style of Christianity is you're not one of those weird born again Christians I paused for a moment before saying friend I am one of those weird born again Christians it turned into a rather shocking conversation for him and a rather humorous conversation for me if you're not quite sure what I'm referring to there's an interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus in the book of John Nicodemus is a Pharisee a Jewish religious teacher who was captivated by Jesus' teaching. But for fear of the other Pharisees, he didn't want them to see him talking to Jesus, so he went to visit Jesus at night. In the midst of this conversation, Jesus looks at the teacher of the law and says to him in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This obviously caused some confusion for this religious teacher, and he says, so what am I supposed to do? Just crawl back into my mother's womb? That can't happen. My son's children's Bible is written by David Helm, and I love how he phrases this. Jesus explained that Nicodemus had not been born into God's kingdom, 
Instead, God's kingdom had to be born into him. I have three children. My youngest is only three months old. I've witnessed the birth pains. It looks excruciating. There is struggle when someone is born. There is pain when someone is born. There is sacrifice when someone is born. But it's absolutely worth it. Less than a month ago, Oprah Winfrey stood up at the Golden Globes and gave an impassioned speech. One of her now famous lines was this, What I know for sure is speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. She couldn't be more wrong, and this line couldn't be more contradictory to the scriptures. In John chapter 8, Jesus, speaking to the Jews who believed in him, said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Being born into the kingdom of God means making an incredible sacrifice. It means giving up your truth so that you might receive the truth of Jesus. It means understanding that your money, your time, your sexuality, your education, your relationship, everything falls under God's authority. And that change can be hard. But it is absolutely worth it. In the fall we were going through a sermon series on the Proverbs. And I remember Pastor Mel's message on money and what Proverbs has to say about money, and I loved how he phrased it. He said something like this, we are not owners of our money, nor are we slaves to our money. We are managers of the money God has given us. Therefore, as managers of God's money, let us be good stewards and live generous lives. That same paradigm could be applied to our time. We don't own our calendars, nor are we slaves to our calendars, but we are managers of our calendars and the time God has given us. May we use it for God's glory. Perhaps one of the greatest areas where scripture and culture collide in Canada today is what the Bible has to say about sexuality. I find the illustration of a desk with two drawers very helpful in this matter. And some people say, well, when is sex okay? What does the Bible say and how does that contradict or work with culture the bible describes sex in this way it says sex is okay in this one drawer when a husband and a wife are in a marital union sex is not okay says the bible in this drawer the junk drawer in any other time and sometimes when we fall uh, under authority of the scriptures that we struggle with it the treasure is beautiful astonishing it's worthy of giving up our life but will we? When we come to the scriptures, when we come on Sunday mornings, when we attend the small groups that we're involved in, are you in authority over God's word or is God's word in authority over you? Writing to a young pastor, we read in the book of 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In committing ourselves to the kingdom of God, there is a change of authority. No longer are we the ruler of our own life, but we say we want to worship King Jesus. We want him to take over. There will be times when something about the scriptures bother us. It grates against us. Our kingdom, our worldview, our culture is confronted with the kingdom of God, and we need to decide who are we going to follow? What you read may not always make you happy, but when you put the scripture into practice, it will make you holy. 
and you see the beauty of the treasure that God has in store for us. Going back to the theme of these, this parable, the treasure is greater than the sacrifice. And yet you might be thinking, wow, Dave, that is a big cost. I hope I've adequately explained the, uh, how unfathomable this treasure is, as well as the sacrifice that goes with it. But one more illustration. If I said to you, is $1,000 expensive, what would you say? Probably say, well, it depends what it is. And I pull out my four-year-old's used toothbrush. (laughs) You would say, that's really expensive. But if I said, for $1,000, I'll give you a brand new 2018 Porsche 911 Turbo, you would say, that's a good deal. I don't have any money, but I'll be back in an hour with 1000 bucks." Is the kingdom of God expensive? It's going to cost something. But the value far exceeds the cost. Are you in? The phrase incredible sacrifice is certainly daunting, so allow me to make it just a little bit more palatable. And just take one bite at a time. What is your next step of obedience? What is your next step of obedience? When it comes to an incredible sacrifice, what can you do this day or this week? Is it time that you look at your giving and think, you know, I I wonder if I can give a little bit more? Do you look at your personal relationship with God and say, you know, I, I don't have a daily time with God. I'd really like to start one. I'm going to find a Bible reading plan this week. Are you involved in group life here at Ellerslie? If you're not, it's going to be difficult to grow. Do you need to make amends in a particular relationship? Are you giving your best at work, at home, at school? Can you be serving somewhere? What is your next step of obedience? This parable is one of the easier ones to understand, and many of you heard it before. So as the people who are helping serve communion today come forward, allow me to turn this parable on the head and perhaps tell you something that you haven't heard before. Opening back up to Matthew chapter 13, verse 45, we see again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And perhaps as you've heard this message taught on before, you keep thinking, how am I like that merchant? What if we turn it on its head? How is God like that merchant? Looking for fine pearls and setting his eyes upon us, saying that is a treasure that I am willing to give up everything for. I love my sons and daughters so much that I am willing to give up an incredible sacrifice and I am going to give up my one and only son. And Jesus Christ, looking at his dad, says, Dad, I am completely on board. Humanity is a beautiful treasure and I am willing to take on that incredible sacrifice and I am going to come down to earth and sacrifice my body and die for all of humanity. And the Holy Spirit is saying, 50 days after Jesus dies, I'm going to come down and I'm going to live in each and one of those people who accept Jesus as our king. 
as we come to the communion table, we are reminded that not only do we give up an incredible sacrifice for a beautiful treasure, but that Jesus did it first, that he treasures us, and so he gives us a beautiful sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this command to remember the death and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and that it is the way to have access to the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son and for his giving of his body for us. We recognize how how far we are from you and our wishes and desires are, are often not what you want for us and as we take a few moments to reflect on this we ask that we would confess our sins make ourselves right before you and take this with a sincere manner and heart thank you again for this sacrifice and for what it means for all of us ask this in your name
cross I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? At the cross I bow my knee, where your blood was shed for me. There's no greater love than this. You have overcome the grave. Your glory fills the highest place. What can separate me now? You tore the veil. You made a sacrifice and an invitation to a beautiful treasure. Let's partake together.